God's word this morning is from 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And this is God's word. Today we're going to kind of move into the practical sections of 1 Timothy in regard to our actual personal lives and where, where Paul begins is to, to try to help us understand the dangers of the world we live in. Uh, there are many false teachers out there. He introduced this early in the beginning of the epistle in, in verses 4, 6, and 7, so uh, we'll try to visit those if I remember. Uh, but in any event, uh, we're going to talk today about the, the plethora of godless teaching in our world. I had firsthand experience of this early in my life. Uh, quickly or soon after we became followers of Christ, we were in a very liberal church. The first small group we ever attended, we discovered that people there uh, believed there were many ways to God. Uh, we learned that it was more important to do good works and to trust Jesus. Uh, we learned you know, things like that, and, and uh, uh, just over time, Soon, God led us out of that church, for which we're very, very, very grateful. Uh, but what that experience has done is sensitized me to false teaching. And so over the course of my ministry, I've been very concerned about that. I think it's close and near to the heart of God as this patch, passage uh, uh, lays out for us today. And uh, so uh, if I get overzealous today, forgive me for that. This is a big deal in my opinion. So... Um, in preparation for this, I thought, I wonder what the landscape in Windsor looks like. So I, I went out to the internet, and there's about 20 churches in Windsor uh, that have websites that list their doctrinal beliefs. So I read through all of them, and uh, what I found is there's about nine of the 20, those churches I would not attend personally. Uh, you can make up your own minds about that, but uh, I'm very sensitive to these issues. I took a minute to kind of take a big picture on the internet about how many false teachers are out there in the world, uh, at least are identified. And within uh, one particular website that I found that did a thorough job of uh, not only researching, but also writing about what their convictions they believed were contrary to Scripture, about 255 false teachers that would be known in America today. Names like Osteen, uh, Haggie, uh, Jakes, some of those names have been mentioned before from this pulpit. This is a big deal in our time. We, we, we're, we're so grateful to be a part of this body that I believe is faithful to the Word of God and, and the teaching of that Word, but we live in a world where that's not necessarily true. It is uh, perpetrated, obviously, in our world by things like the Internet, by television, by books, the many that are written. So uh, hopefully what we'll take away today is something, uh, some guidelines, some things to look at for our lives to, to give us kind of warning signs if we see that in the writings or teachings of these individuals. 
Some of you may have come from backgrounds like I did. I, I don't know. Uh, you maybe grew up or were part of a church that uh, believed the law was more important than Jesus or didn't even believe in a Jesus at all. You maybe have come out. I met a guy Friday that uh, is an elder in another church here in town, which I do believe preaches the gospel, grew up in Mormonism. And so there are cults out there that teach uh, error and uh, gross error. But the reality is it's around us. My point is we live in a world like that, and the, the Scripture will tell us that and reaffirm that for us in a moment. God has given these instructions, I believe, to Timothy and to us in the church today to guard the gospel, to be warned and to be sensitive to the way the gospel can be uh, distorted or in some way become deceptive uh, through false teaching. So uh, we're going to spend our time in these first five verses. God says this in His Word as He opens up this passage. I'm going to read uh, verses down through the first half of verse 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. So what we see here first is, is that Paul writes that the Spirit has expressly revealed this to the church. How did he do that? He did it through Jesus. Uh, the teachings of Jesus reveal this, but also to the apostles, Paul being one, Peter as well. Um, they, they were uh, inspired by the Spirit to write about these things so that we would be uh, aware of them. We could t- uh, take guard uh, in regard to them. So it, it's very, very significant we look at this thing. Uh, the, the, the thing also says that during the latter times, understand that theologically, the latter times uh, uh, technically are the times from the resurrection of Jesus Christ until the return of Jesus Christ. So it's any time between then and, and, and the return of Christ, which is we live in the latter times here and now. So this is very relevant for us. Uh, just a couple of examples from the Scripture where this is uh, made pretty evident to us. Paul wrote earlier in Romans uh, sixteen eighteen these words, For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Wow. I mean, just let that sink in. This is what some do in our world today. Second uh, Peter says this in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will sincerely bring, excuse me, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. In this passage, Paul goes on to uh, highlight five ways that are very descriptive and characteristic of false teachers. The first, he says, they've departed from the faith. It means they, and, and understand, this is an error, this is a serious warning about within the church. This isn't outside the church. He's writing to the church about the dangers within the church. And he says, first, they will depart the faith. And what does that mean? Did they really believe? I, I think Jesus explained it well for us uh, in Matthew 13, where he talked about the seeds that fell on different soils. One soil type was rocky soil where the seeds sprung up for a little while and then when it got hot, it died. Or seeds were cast or sown among thistles and when the thistles grew up, uh, the seed was choked out. So what we see there, I believe, is, is that some people may grow up uh, and 
uh, embrace some of the teachings of Scripture, but never really truly believe. They take on the character, the looks, the appearance of those who are genuine followers, but really there is no true real faith in them. And so when it says the part of the faith, I think it means leave uh, the, 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 the teachings of Scripture. They depart the true gospel. Let me explain to you uh, what faith means here. And I be, believe very deeply that faith is a, is a significant part uh, of our salvation, but faith isn't what saves us. That may shock you because we say it all the time. Let me explain faith this way. Faith requires an object. And this is the simplest, clearest way I've ever come across to explain. Think of two men, this is a number of years ago, that needed to get home for Christmas, and they both came up against very large rivers that they couldn't cross. And, and the rivers were covered with ice. Different rivers, different guys, different places. Christmas was near. Bridges were miles away. And the only way, they thought, to get across the river was to cross the ice. One guy in bold faith stepped out like he knew that ice would hold him. And uh, by the second or third step, the ice is cracking and he could not proceed. That faith didn't get him across the ice. The second guy had very weak faith. <clears throat> and what he chose to do was get down on his hands and knees and spread out his weight and literally scoot across the ice so that he spread his weight as broadly as he could across the ice. And he made his way halfway across the river when he heard this noise to his left. And he, he looked up and he saw this, and this is the olden days, he saw this huge wagon full of coal pulled by four horses going across the ice. And he realized all of a sudden, oh, that ice could hold me. So he got up and he continued walking across the ice. The, the reality is here's two kinds of faith. Bold, great faith and weak faith. Timid, you know, a very uh, unsure faith. The reality is faith doesn't save. What saves is the object of what they were looking to to save them, deliver them. The, the, the basis of our faith could be worthless if it's not in the right object. And our object is Jesus Christ, Him crucified, the perfect Savior, the one who took our sin upon Himself and died in our place. That's God's message. That's God's message to us. Someone had to pay the penalty for our sin, and then provide graciously to us the power uh, to be delivered from that sin. And that's what Jesus has done. So that's faith. Faith in the right object is what saves. The right object is Jesus Christ. And if you likened him to ice, he would be ice one million miles thick. Absolutely trustworthy. So with that, they departed the faith. They, they never really embraced the object of faith. False teachers are also devoted to the... Uh, deceitful teachings of spirits and of demons. I, I don't know about you, but this, this passage just goes, wow. There are people who literally believe the teachings of demons and, and, and of deceiving spirits. Understand, Paul wasn't making light of this issue. He wouldn't say, well, they just missed the gospel a little bit. They didn't totally understand it. They, they were in error a little bit. He says, these are emissaries and agents of Satan himself who teach lies, who, who deceive, demons who teach things that are contrary to the gospel. Uh, this can be very uh, bold or oftentimes, most often I believe it is very subtle. Some wise person once said, the greatest lie is the one closest to the truth. The greatest lie is the one closest to the truth. So the deceptions, the deceiving teaching of these beings as agents of Satan, could bring 
uh, great destruction, great damage to uh, anyone who would listen to them or follow them. The third thing that uh, Paul draws our attention to is that they're hypocritical liars. They've had some understanding of biblical truth of God and his message, but they don't believe it. They still carry on the title of leader or teacher, but they lie about what the Bible says. They deceive. They distort. They use it to subvert the faith of those who would believe. They claim to be teachers when literally they're agents of the pit of hell. They follow and listen to deceiving spirits and the teachings of demons. They, uh, Paul in chapter 1 identifies these in several ways. Uh, beginning in verse 4, he, he talks about the way they burden believers. He says, to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And that's a concept I want to come back to at the end of the passage. The, the idea that we're to steward the faith God has given us. We're to guard it. We're to protect it. We're to care for it. And we're to live it uh, in, in the reality of, of the truth of God. In verse uh, 1, 6, it says, he talks about them uh, using vain discussions. In, in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. These are the ones who were leading, trying to lead people uh, away from Christ in the church in Ephesus. Timothy was being warned against them. These same kinds of teachers are out there today. A fourth thing is it says their consciences are seared. I don't know, if, have any of you grown up on a ranch and you branded cattle? That's searing the flesh with a hard, hot iron. And, and that's what's in, in view here, that by the rejection of uh, the truth of God, our consciences can be seared. And these teachers uh, were so deceived, so deadened to the truth that they were uh, literally untouched by it and untouched by the Spirit of God. That is a terrible place to be. The Bible calls that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is the sin that leads to death. When a person is so dead to the leading of the Spirit of God that they are no longer convicted of sin or, or their wrongdoing, uh, when they come to that place, uh, they are, their consciences are insensitive. It's cauterized. It's hardened. They are seared in their thinking. Uh, the scripture shows us uh, some passages like this in Romans 1.24. It says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of the bodies among themselves. They had been so insensitive, so blinded, so dead to God's truth that they began to do anything their heart told them to do in the way of something that was immoral and wrong. A fifth thing is that they really distort the teaching of God. Uh, they, it says here, uh, they distorted God's goodness about marriage and about food. Uh, they taught abstinence from those things as though in some way abstaining from it would gain them merit or favor or add in, in a positive way to their salvation. This is the same lie that, that, that uh, the Galatians faced, uh, a distortion of the teaching of the gospel and of the scripture that led... Uh, Paul to say to the Galatians, you've added to the gospel, you've destroyed the gospel, you are now an anathema to God. Anytime we distort or change the gospel in any way, that is the place that we come. So here are the five things that Paul lays out uh, that 
are characteristics of those who are deceitful, false teachers in the church. Uh, another passage that really highlights some of how they dealt with these things is, comes from Colossae. The Colossians, the Corinthians, the Ephesians, all of these churches were, were being infiltrated by a thinking that later became known in the second century as Gnosticism. The teachings of Gnosticism simply said two things. One, anything that's spiritual is good. Anything that's physical or pleasurable in this world is bad. It's evil. It's wicked. So the pleasures of food, the pleasures of sex, the pleasures of marriage, all of that is bad, it's evil, it's wicked. That's what they were trying to teach to these believers. This is what uh, Paul wrote in Colossians. He said, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is what they were teaching. Stay away, avoid, don't embrace uh, the things that are around you that God has made. We'll see that more in a moment. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. There is a danger out there. It's as real today as it was in Paul's day. Uh, We need to be aware of it. We need to watch for those five things, and we need to be on guard. Some great statements by church leaders now and in in times uh, past. Uh, I just want to share some of these with you to to, uh, just emphasize the significance of all this. MacArthur says, All false teachers, all purveyors of false religion are the enemies of Christ and the enemies of the truth and the enemies of the gospel and the enemies of the soul. C.H. Spurgeon said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. It's like I quoted earlier, the greatest lie oftentimes is the one closest to the truth. You know, we can take something like a, a, a wonderful ordinance like baptism, and some churches do that. They add it to salvation. They say, you must be baptized also. Believe in Jesus, but be baptized, and then you will be saved. That is a lie from the pit of hell. There's nothing man can do to save himself, include any, include any righteous work you would ever want to to that. It's Jesus and him alone. He died to pay the penalty for us. He is the object of our faith. Anytime the enemy can deceive us with those things, he puts our salvation back on us. And then I get into this place where am I saved or not? Did I live good enough or not? Did I break his law or not? I'm unaccepted, unapproved by God when I believe it based on what I do. That's the lie from the pit of hell. Albert Moeller says, Today's church cannot remain faithful if it tolerates false teachers and leaves their teachings uncorrected and unconfronted. Paul would say, Amen. John Calvin said, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. We don't have to look far in our world. The decline of the, of the gospel and the vibrant church in Europe is a result of a rejection and denial of the inspiration, authority, and absolute truthfulness of God's word, and it's happening in this country as well. There are many churches that reject that truth. In addition to that, churches try to deny the exclusivity 
and the supremacy of Christ. They say, oh, he's just a great teacher like all the other spiritual teachers out there. You cannot believe that about Christ if you read this book and believe its teachings. He made claims for himself that no, no person would ever make. I'm the way, the truth, and life. I'm the resurrection and life. No. I, do I say those? No. Do you any, if I hear you say that, uh, we'll wrap you up in one of those little white suits and take you somewhere. Uh, so uh, this, these are the realities that are out there. Uh, so anyway, let's, uh, let's t- take a look now at how Paul refuted all this in, in just the, the latter part of this passage we're looking at today. Beginning in verse 3, the middle, and going to verse 5. And he says, in regard to marriage and food, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I want to share three things with you about this passage. First, uh, it says that what God has created should be received with thanksgiving for those who do what? Who believe and know the truth. This is how we come to be transformed and changed as believers in Christ. The Spirit of God, the Word of God work in our hearts and lives to deepen our understanding about God and about His work in our lives and about His provision for us and His grace and the work of Jesus so that we come to that place where we believe and we know the truth. What changes our lives is when this belief and this knowledge that we know to be true begins to overwhelm our thinking about life and and ourselves and others. And we begin to live in a way that demonstrates the righteousness of God. We call this the renewal of the mind. The re- so, so God changes our thinking. And, and the first thing that, that he wants us to understand and know, he is the creator. He made everything. He did it all. If there's a lie in our world today, it's evolution. I'm scientifically trained. And I haven't spent years studying the the, the two, but I know enough about science to tell you boldly, profoundly today, I do not believe the lies of evolution. And part of the reason I believe that is this book, in 44 of its 66 books, says God created. God created. And I want you to understand, this is key. Because if everything just happened, then you can use it any way you want for your own pleasure. But if God made it, you better look at it and relate to it in a different way. If we believe and we know the truth that God is creator, we better look at life 100% different than how we've been looking at it. Let's take this, this thing called marriage and food. Marriage, you know, the unbelieving world says, you know, sex is good. Go get all you can get. You know, use marriage for your own selfish ends and purposes. Well, this is what the Word of God says about marriage. In Hebrews 13, 4, it says, Marriage, let marriage be held in honor among all. 
and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge. And I'm going to throw in here the unrepentant, sexually immoral, and adulterous person. There are two great teachings in this single verse. First, marriage is to be honored because it's God's gift. God made it. God gave it to us. It is to be honored by all. And it is to be guarded by a transformed mind that wants to live understanding that it's God's gift to us. It's God's provision. It's God's blessing in our lives. This is powerful. We need to live understanding and seeing. I, I, I believe what I'm going to share with you in the next 10 minutes will change your marriage forever. I believe that with all my heart. So hang with me just a few moments. Understand that marriage and, and marital relationships is, is at the heart of God's gift to us for this area of our lives. So much so that Paul took quite a bit of time in, in, in the Corinthian church and they were being attacked in the same way this church was uh, and suggesting they abstain from these things. Whether you're married or going to get married, uh, whatever, listen to these words. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have, and this is a present imperative in the Greek, his own wife, and each wife has her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights. And I just threw this in to get you to laugh because this is pretty serious, even though you wish she had more. Uh, that didn't work. And likewise, the wife to her husband, even though she wished he had less <laughs> desire for conjugal rights. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the pastors got together and we thought a really good way to promote prayer in the church would it be to, to encourage abstinence. No, I'm kidding. We really didn't do it. But we would like to promote prayer, all we can. But, but the reality is, uh, this is a significant part of our lives. God made us. Isn't it interesting that the enemy talks attacks two significant things that occur in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis. He made us male and female and commanded us to go forth, multiply, and increase on the earth. And then he said in the garden, eat of any tree except that one. God gave us the desires for these things. God created us this way. And Paul said, this is all good, but do it in a right way to honor God. Don't deny each other, except if you mutually agree to it. And only for a limited time. Set that time when you agree to it. And lastly, for the purpose of prayer. So bear that in mind. That's the guidelines the Scripture give. I don't think that says to abstain from marriage and, and marital relations. I think it says treat them as God's gift. Paul goes on to talk, or Paul doesn't, but I want to address the issue of food with Jesus' words from Mark 7, 18 through 19. And he said to them, Then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever, you, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since he, 
since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. This, or thus he declared all food as clean. These are Jesus' words. What he's simply saying is food is given to nourish us. It's God's gift to sustain our life. It has all the elements in it that we need to live. You quit eating, you die. It has protein. It has carbohydrates. It has minerals. It has amino acids. All of this is in food in a proper way to sustain our It's God's gift. Don't abstain from it. Eat. Rejoice. It's his good gift. Enjoy it. There are guidelines, obviously, to it, but understand these things. And all of this, Paul says, receive with thanksgiving. Don't reject it. Receive it with thanksgiving because you what? You believe and know the truth. You see, our life, our behavior is shaped by what we believe and know to be truth. So we can embrace these gifts of God. Well, let's move on. It, it uh, says a bit more here in the passage. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. The profound truth of this passage is God made everything to be good. Back in Genesis, it talks about everything he made was good. And, and let, me, let me say this as powerfully as I can. Sex is good, not because we like it, but because God made it. Food is good, not because we enjoy it and we like certain things. It's because God made it for us. He's provided it for us, and we're to receive it with thanksgiving, not use it as some way to, to make him or others think we're better than others. You know, if I abstain from food or this other stuff, that makes me a stronger Christian. You'll see that in some churches that put the law above Christ. Christ sets us free to embrace and to enjoy and to relish all the goodness God gives and to thank Him and praise Him and honor Him for that. That's the point. Receive it with thanksgiving. Gratitude to God. You know, the, the greatest thing of life is we are God's children. He's made us, created us to know Him and receive His blessing, His goodness, and to live that way. And now this is the part I really want to share with you. As this passage ends up, it ends up with these words. This marriage, marital relations, and food is said here to be made holy by the word of God in prayer. I'm going to change your marriage forever. I have never looked at my wife in this way before that she is God's holy, glorious, gracious, good gift to me. And I need to treat her as set apart, as holy before God. The word here is hagios. It is the same exact word used throughout Scripture to depict the elements that were set apart for worship to God. I want to learn to see my wife more as God's holy and good gift to me and treat her that way. I don't know how she'll ever see me as God's good and holy gift to her, but, but you know, if you believe the passage, you better read that into it as well. We are God's good and holy gift to each other. Do we see each other that way? Do we treat each other that way? Do we allow the word of God, the truth of God, to cause us to think that way 
when we look at it, or, 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 or do we not? The issue is, is I'm gonna, am I going to treasure and value God's good and holy gift to me? Or am I just going to use it for my pleasure in some way? The difference here is being a consumer as opposed to being a steward. As a steward of God, it means we take everything God has given. We see first that it's his gift. It's his good gift because he created it. And he created it for our good. When I see that, I treasure it, I care for it, I I nurture it, I value it, I, I protect it. I stay faithful to it as opposed to being a consumer, using it only for my pleasure. That's where life falls apart. When we begin to see everything in this world, it's just here for my pleasure. We miss the message God has for us. Good, holy. Praise God for that. Thank God for that. Let those truths change your life, change the way that you think about living in a marriage relationship. If you're going to marry someone, you better learn to begin to think about them, look to them in that same way. Are you looking for God's holy, good gift for you? I would make that a matter of prayer if I was unmarried at this point, looking to marry. But what do we do with this? First, be warned. There are those in our world who distort the message of the gospel, the freedom we have in Christ, the wonder of the goodness of God, His his creative wonder in what He's provided for us and wants to bless us with. We we look at stuff as, as average or common rather than as sacred and holy before God. We don't give Him thanks for that. We, we just take it for our own pleasure. And we miss the greatest opportunity we have to honor God and, and give Him thanks and praise. Stand against these deceptions and lies in our world. They will deny the faith. They will follow the teaching of deceiving spirits and the teaching of demons. They will be hypocritical liars. They will. They will. If I can remember the fourth one, I'll tell you what it is. They will have seared consciences. They they are not touched by the Spirit of God or the Word of God any longer. And they distort His Word. Embrace that God is the Creator. Know and believe this truth God has created. It's all good. And God has given it to you to be holy before you, to thank Him, to praise Him, set apart for you, to honor Him and rejoice in His blessing and His goodness. Realizing it, it's good not because it's pleasurable, but because God made it. He made it for us. Oh, God, touch our hearts with this truth. I read through 15 commentaries this week on this part of this passage, and I saw not one word about this truth. Not one. That saw marriage and marital relationships and even food as God's holy sanctified gift. I I want to encourage us today, when you go home to have lunch, don't do the good bread, good meat, good God, let's eat thing. 
fall down before God and say, God, I thank you that you provide for me today the nourishment that will empower me to thank you, love you, walk with you, honor you. Help me to be so grateful for your goodness, God. We do that with food. My question to you is, why don't we do this in the bedroom? It's every bit as good a gift from God as anything else we have in life. My wife, our relationship, every dimension of it is his good and perfect gift to me. I don't know about you, but I need to repent of my my careless thinking about what God has given me, what he's created for me. Let's pray. God, forgive me. I, I don't know if there's anyone here today convicted, but God, forgive me that I have treated your holy and good gift so often, carelessly, selfishly, without thought, that it's your gift. It's your goodness poured out in my life. God, help me to walk away from this day with a renewed understanding of my marriage and my relationship with my wife. I'm not just to love her as Christ loved the church. God, I am to cherish her as your holy gift to me, an outpouring of your goodness. God, do whatever you need to do in my life. And anyone in this body who believes these things to be true, do whatever you need to do to change that. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you that when we fail and when we stumble, Lord, we can confess these sins. And we know, Father, that when, when, when we confess our sins to you, you forgive us and you purify us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name.